This is Nick Gibson. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast here at High Point Church. Our guest today is Dr. Nathaniel Jensen. Dr. Jensen is the author of Replacing Darwin, The New Origin of Species. He holds a young earth creationist view of origins, and that's what we'll be talking about today. We have Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, who is the author of Replacing Darwin, The New Origin of Species. Um, and so I just want to make clear before I bring in Dr. Jensen that um, my goal for these origin interviews is not for me to contradict, attack, or try to debate with our guests, but to help them explain their arguments clearly so that we can understand them. And then hopefully maybe in the future we can all argue about it. We'll see about those episodes. So um, Nathaniel, thanks so much for being here and taking the time to be with us. Um, we really appreciate it. Can you give people a background, like your credentials, where you went to school, how you got interested in this, like a little bit of an introduction there so people know where you're coming from? Sure. And thanks for the opportunity to, to chat with you. Yeah. I grew up in Wisconsin, was born in Milwaukee, raised in Racine, and to a, a I guess you could say, a medical family. My dad was a dentist. My mother was a nurse who retired when she had me and my siblings. So I grew up in a sciencey household, you could say enough to know that I had no interest in working with blood. I saw enough in my dad's office that I said, no, thanks. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, went, I was homeschooled through eighth grade. I went to a small Christian high school in Union Grove, Wisconsin, Union Grove Christian mm -hmm. School. I grew up in a young earth creationist household. And I say that because that was one of the criteria my parents had when they were looking for a high school. So this was in the uh, mid-90s. My parents were sort of on the on the front end of the homeschool movement, we were looking for a high school partially just because it wasn't clear in terms of accreditation or acceptance into college. So that was some of the background there as well. So I went to, uh, went to Union Grove Christian School, graduated there, went to the University of Wisconsin Parkside, partially because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And when I indicated an interest in science, they came back with an offer of, hey, we've got this new molecular biology program, and you can get a master's in, and end a bachelor's in a total of five years. I thought, great. What is molecular biology? And once they explained that it, it seemed to be a, a combination of chemistry, at least the rigor of chemistry, but with a, with a life application, medical application of biology, mm -hmm. it sounded like a, a great fit and would allow me to avoid blood while still working on questions that I found interesting and relevant to human health. At and that I, age, yeah. I would have been more interested in working with blood than dealing with chemistry. So I, <laughs> I applaud that interest. <laughs> so it turns out... Uh, I, went, I, I got my bachelor's in four years. My dad had advised getting an advanced degree from the start, and I learned that master's didn't, doesn't get you any further in the Ph.D. program. You still have to put the full time in, so I thought, well, let's see if I can skip the master's. Went to Harvard for uh, a Ph.D. Part of the reason I picked it was because the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is associated with it, and that offered a, a, a whole list of opportunities for cancer research, which was my interest at the time. And in God's providence, I ended up working in a blood stem cell lab. And part of my research involved <laughs> sacrificing about 2,000 mice, removing their skin, taking out their bones, and working with all sorts of blood. But it wasn't my own, and I wasn't poking myself with a needle. So I guess it, it turned out okay. I just had to not think about what I was doing. And then uh, oh, <laughs> once I got closer to graduation, I would say about halfway through graduate school, maybe I was born again. Maybe I had an epiphany. I, I don't know what you would call it. I know that even though I'd grown up in a Christian home, lived as a model child, knew the gospel from an early age. I had long struggled with pornography, lust, uh, calling it different names and justifying it, and didn't understand how is it, within a Protestant framework, believing in Jesus leads to godly living. And I feel like the dots were finally connected there in the middle of graduate school, just in a variety of circumstances I can't explain. But seeing the beauty of holiness the beauty of God's and God's glory being holy and beautiful and that being the attractiveness, part of the attractiveness of the gospel. Anyway, that changed and affected my career ambitions. So it went from wanting to cure cancer, win the Nobel Prize, and then have a platform to preach the gospel, which was in theory noble. It just became mm -hmm. a selfish ambition after a while in graduate school to yeah. how can I use my degree for something more immediately, eternally significant. And maybe that sounds like a contradiction, but something more direct application, like missions. I considered overseas missions, explored that, tent making. Can I go to a, you know, Saudi Arabia as a biologist and then have a way to get into the country and preach the gospel? Mm -hmm. That fell through, and so I ended up uh, eventually applying, make a long story short, to the Institute for Creation Research in 2009. I was there six years, and now I'm about uh, 
it's been a total of 10 years doing professional young earth creation research. Uh, part of the time at the Institute for Creation Research, now I'm at Answers in Genesis, and that's the office I'm sitting in right now speaking. Okay, great. Um, would you say Institute for Creation Research and Answers in Genesis are kind of the two most kind of well-formed, funded, and organized for getting out the young earth creationist message? There's the probably about three. The Institute for Creation Research was the first, founded in 1970. Ken Ham toured with them in the 80s in uh, – Coming over from Australia, he founded Answers in Genesis in the early 90s with a focus on reaching the lay audience specifically, and, mm -hmm. and ICR was mm -hmm. sort of the more academic side of things. Okay. And then the Creation Ministries International broke away from Answers in Genesis, or there was some sort of split that, that predates me, uh, so I can't give you all the details, but those are sort of the three main ones. There's a, there's a smaller group, the Creation Research Society, that's even older. That was founded in the 60s by Henry Morris and company for the purpose of having a, a peer-reviewed journal and a way to exchange ideas. But those are the major ones, and there's, there's a lot of smaller ones across the United States, and of course, there's stuff international as well. Mm -hmm. Some years ago, I got invited to Bryan College in Tennessee to speak, and they have like some kind of deal down there that they, have, that they really focus on with students as well, but it's much, much smaller. Um, okay, so as every uh, good um, discussion of somebody who's written a book should start, what's your book replacing Darwin about? Like, what what's the scientific purpose, and what's the like apologetics purpose? My book replacing Darwin is explicitly targeting a skeptic. I've been told this is really my first major book. I've been told by other authors that every author ultimately writes for himself or herself, mm -hmm. and that's no exception in this case. I wrote the book. I wish I had when I was a student, amongst a bunch of unbelieving peers, so that I could have a book, hand it to them, and say, if you believe in evolution, if, you don't, if you're not a Christian, you need to read this. And I, again, I'm thinking in a science context. All, all of mm -hmm. my peers and in the lab, they're all thinking science-y, and so for them, evolution is a big deal. And so I want to hand something to them, addressing the issue that they deal with day in and day out, and that shows them the veracity of the scriptures and leads them to the gospel so we can have this discussion. Because it's, to me, it's, it's a foundational issue. And that's what replacing Darwin tries to do. It, it's, that, that's really the apologetics purpose. In terms of the, the, the focus I take in it, uh, there's a long backstory there, but it has to do with what I grew up with, attending creation seminars, listening to what the other side said, hearing their arguments, and then trying to take them head on. So uh, tell me if you agree with this characterization, Nathaniel. Um, as I read the book, I felt like especially the first three chapters were also like an introduction to genetics because I felt like for me, I, I, for me, like getting through those chapters, I was, I like, I wanted to skip them because like I've read a bunch on this stuff, but like, I was like, you know, I could give this to my 14 year old who doesn't know much about genetics and it starts with Mendel and you just like, you walk people through pretty methodically so that if you don't know anything about genetics, cause a lot of your arguments are, are related to DNA, genetics, mitochondrial DNA, those kinds of things. And so you spend like a couple of chapters just like starting with Mendel and getting people kind of up to speed to like past, just passed in code maybe so that people, if you, they don't know anything about um, like microbiology relative to evolution debates, they can read this book. Would you say that's true? That it's not like, it's not like you have to be, have multiple classes in biology or something to read this or, or be pretty much up with what's already going on with DNA research. Almost any Christian can read this, right? Exactly. And that was one of, I, I tried to put in several purposes with those opening chapters. One was exactly that so that anyone could pick it up. It is a steep learning curve. The arguments are steeped in yeah. genetics, but I wanted to make it accessible with labor, but accessible to anyone. I had a pastor read through it saying, you know, help me make sure this is clear and yeah. followable. And so he gave me pointers there as well. Other purposes included, if I'm writing to a skeptical audience, I have right. to establish credentials, establish trust. And so if I accurately mm -hmm. describe what they know to be true, that right. builds rapport with the audience. And then thirdly, it builds me a base from which I can draw illustrations about basic points later in the book. So the nature of science and how we test hypotheses and these sorts of things, I can draw analogies from that which is uncontroversial to make points about that which is highly disputed. So the shorter version, yes, is replacing Darwin made simple. And there's a couple of changes between that and replacing Darwin. One is the audience. In this case, replacing Darwin made simple. I'm explicitly targeting a churched believing audience, someone who says, I'm going to agree with you in principle. I don't know the details. Can you give me the bullet points? And can you give me the tips on how I would engage an unbeliever? I don't do that in replacing Darwin because I'm assuming the audience is an unbeliever. So they already know what evolution says. They're the ones making the arguments against creation. 
So I just engage them head on without giving the backstory. In replacing Darwin made simple, I say, okay, here's what the evolutionists have been saying, here's why they say it, and here's why what you've just read is relevant to that argument. Um, okay, so uh, before we get into some of the arguments here, Nathaniel, can you explain to people, like, some, I, some people who are listening to this probably heard you say, I was going to research cancer, and blah, 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 but I, then I ended up doing this, and I think that's good. They'd be like, what? Like, why would you do that instead of, like, researching cancer treatments, right? Like, you think this is really important. You believe that this is important for people's faith, and it's important for the truth to come out. Um, like, what, like how, why do you think that, why do you think it's a critical thing instead of doing something else? Yes, that's a great question, and I, I, I can think of personal reasons. I can think of theological reasons that all guided this decision. Mm-hmm. For me personally, I had a background in science, and so my, the question for me was how can I use what God has given me, in this case a degree, a set of research skills, and everything that comes along with it for a, a, a ministry purpose. The constraints I found in lab were, uh, there, there were a number of them. One of them had to do with ethics. So it turns out that the stem cell question and human medical research in general had some stumbling blocks for me. So people might be familiar with it, with the stem cell yeah. question, adult stem cells versus embryonic stem cells. Right. It turns out that virtually any human medical research requires as a tool a cell line that was derived from an aborted fetus in the late 70s. And I, I had to track this down and look up the paper. It's called the 293T cell line. No one knows why it works so well. It's, it's just got these quirky characteristics that it's used all over the place. And so for me, it was a conscience issue. I'm not personally participating in the life and death decision when I use the cell line that was made decades ago. Right. To me, it was sort of a 1 Corinthians uh, 10, Romans 14, can I do this with a clear conscience? And I didn't feel like I could, especially in that context with an anomaly Catholic boss and a, and a bunch of self-professed unbelieving co-workers. And so that, that seemed to severely narrow my career possibilities, whether it would be in academia, whether it would be in industry. I, I didn't see an easy path forward continuing to pursue that. So then I asked, what else can I do with what I've been trained in? And so I, I, I grew up in a creationist home, and, and that, that was an option for me personally. Theologically, why I think this is worth pursuing as a Christian in science is, is a number of reasons I can think of. One is the foundational, to me, importance of Genesis. And I can say this not just from a, a detached academic perspective, I can give those arguments, but even as I look to the future now, the direction of the country, some of the rhetoric I'm hearing from the other side, I've, I, I don't know that anyone would disagree that some sort of persecution or suffering is coming. Uh, for me personally, I had, I had a mental breakdown about a year ago. I was in Colombia doing maybe the biggest event of my life and sitting in the bathroom uncontrollably crying. And it's been a long process trying to just figure that out and finding answers. And for me to be able to understand the larger narrative of Scripture and how difficulty, challenges, persecution, sin, any of that fits into this, to me it's, it's, been, it's been critical to have that foundation of here's the overall narrative of Scripture. It starts good and perfect and without sin. This, so this would be the young earth view that it start, God creates everything in six days, uh, rests on the seventh. It's without sin. There's no death. There's no suffering. It's an idyllic paradise. And Eden, you know, Garden of Eden, the word Eden means pleasure. It is what we all dream it to be and more. Yeah. And the reason the world exists the way it does today is because mankind's an admin of sin and God cursed the world. And so as I try to make sense of my own circumstances, both for me personally dealing with whatever mental issues I may have, dealing with as a father, I'm a father of uh, four kids, seven and under, and thinking, what do I do to take responsibility for their future and what kind of country they're growing up in and what could they encounter? Trying to process all that, it's been essential to have that narrative of this is not how it's supposed to be, this is what's coming, and here's why, or why maybe this is happening to me. <clears throat> that's sort of generalities, but that, that's for me personally, and then for me theologically, I, I, I've reached that conclusion about that overall meta-narrative arc of Scripture based on a whole bunch of detailed Scripture arguments which we could go into, but that's mm-hmm. sort of the, the, the nutshell. Yeah, I think one of the things that a lot of our listeners don't realize is that there's, I think there's a couple of big theological point, 
points that young earth creationists feel like you have to believe in young earth creationism to insist upon these in their fullness. One is the entrance of death into the world with the sin of Adam and Eve. Also, that Adam and Eve are a first couple of real human beings who knew each other and were the progenitors of the human race. That is our first parents. And that's become more relevant in the last few years because some Christians have been putting forward a view of evolutionary theory that doesn't just say everything evolved, eventually you got humans, those humans started with Adam and Eve, and then we got the human race. But that because population evolution says that you have to start with a population of about 10,000, that you can't really have a literal Adam and Eve. That that's not how it works. And so therefore, we have to read the early chapters of Genesis in, in a fully mythological way. And so for a lot of, for a lot of, I think, evangelical or, or Bible believing Christians, they would have said they didn't have, they didn't have necessarily a big problem with it. But now that we're, we're literally saying there was no Adam and Eve and they were, and they've been like, okay, whoa, wait. And, and our evolutionary friends have said, look, this was always the implication. I mean, we were always going to be here. This isn't weird that now we're saying this, but I think for a lot of Christians, when you get to that point and you say, Okay, so part of the implication here with an evolutionary understanding of the world is that there, there isn't an Adam and Eve. The, they're like pictorial representations of early humanity, but they're not real. Um, and I think that has taken caused some people to kind of rethink if they're in the wrong paradigm or something, because that sounds like – it sounds like you've got to torture some New Testament scriptures to get a non-literal Adam and Eve to them. And so they're concerned about that. Would you say that has kicked up some dust and created some more interest in the last few years? Yes. And the reason it has is to me interesting to, to witness. <clears throat> so just a little bit of backstory then. The <clears throat> reason we haven't heard these sorts of arguments about Adam and Eve in particular until recently is because of the science. You can talk about human origins with fossils. You can talk about it with timelines from geology. You, you can do all sorts of things apart from genetics, except talk about the population size. You can't make an argument scientifically about the size of our ancestral population with just fossils. You have to have DNA. And of course, human DNA, our DNA sequence wasn't elucidated until 2001. And then of course, it's taken some time afterwards to get DNA sequences from all sorts of different ethnic groups around the globe. Once we had that data in hand, now we can go back and say, how do we explain the amount of genetic diversity we see around the globe today? That'll allow you to make an argument about the population size, and that's why it's taken so long to hear that argument from within the evolutionary community. And, and that's why perhaps it takes people by surprise. It hasn't been made before because the science hasn't been there to say yay or nay. Now that it's here, that's why the arguments have arisen. And I would say another implication or perhaps observation that arises from this is, to me, it, it, it makes the lines clearer. From my view as a young earth creationist, the fact that genetics has come to the fore has made it a moment of truth, I would say, for old earth creationists. So those who are Christians and hold evolution have the whole package from the start about how we arose, how we got here. And they're making the arguments from all sorts of fields of science. Old earth creationists have tended to be, we accept the arguments in geology and astronomy and paleontology, <clears throat> evolution accepted. In biology, we see arguments against evolution. And it, there, was, there was the ability to sort of disconnect the biological side of the argument from the time side of the argument, and as well the population size. Well, mm -hmm. with the advent of modern genetics and all the tools we now have available, you have to make a statement about the time scale and the population size when you're talking biology. You have to do that now because we have genetics. And so I think that becomes then a moment of truth for old earth creationists now they, have to, now they have to do something with that in biology. We, we can't just say, here's the arguments against evolution. We have to now make sense of both the ancestry and the timescale components within the field of biology and specifically of genetics. And so that, that then becomes a moment of truth and a, and a dividing line. Relative to your book in writing and expertise, um, Dr. Cheatson, um, what, are, like, what, are the, what are the top few arguments that you make? So in, if somebody were to read your book, they could expect you to make these arguments for young earth creationism based on the, um, on the bi biological, particularly genetic biological information that you particularly work with as a, as a specialist. What are those arguments? Yes. And I want to give some context for the book because I don't give the context in replacing Darwin. I do it in replacing Darwin made simple. And I think this is especially critical for believers. Okay. So the context I grew up in, I, 
I went to Young Earth Creation seminars. I went to debates as a child. Uh, I would read the other side as a high schooler, as a college student. And so I knew the arguments that evolutionists were launching against a creationist and even a Young Earth creationist view. Some of our listeners may be familiar with arguments from the fossil record, arguments from genetics. The one that I think has not been as appreciated but was at the forefront of my mind when I wrote the book was the last fallback for the evolutionary model. And this has a legal history. It has a practical history. It has a debate history. And I'm going to review that real fast just because it's so critical to understanding why I wrote what I did and the implications it has for the wider creation evolution debate. And I'm going to call it a watershed, and here's the reason why. Young Earth creationism, modern Young Earth creationism, resurged 1961 with the publication of the Genesis Flood by Whitcomb and Morris. The evolutionist creationists would agree on that. This is the point at which things change. He was at, I think, Virginia Tech. Henry Morris was. John Whitcomb was a theologian. And uh, not surprisingly, John uh, Henry Morris eventually left his position at Virginia Tech in the late 60s because life was being made difficult for him, founded the Institute for Creation Research in 1970. 1970s when there was, a, was when there was a large wave of popularity, especially on college campuses, of young earth creationism, of creation evolution debates. Dwayne Gish had a heyday back then. And the evolutionary community, if you read their writings, will say, we were unprepared for this. We were used to seeing creationists make Bible arguments. Students in my class would make Bible arguments. We weren't prepared for scientific arguments. And they will admit we didn't do so well in the 1970s. And because of that success on the part of young earth creationists, they were emboldened then to introduce legislation in public schools, let's teach creationism alongside evolution. So that's when the legal battles really got started in the late 70s, 19, early 1980s. One of the biggest decisions was the Arkansas court case, I think it was 1981, in which the judge overturned one of these equal time propositions. And the Supreme Court followed suit about 1987. And this these decisions have laid the framework, the context in which this whole debate has been played out over the next 40 years, up to the present day. And that decision was, you cannot teach creation science in public schools because it's not science. That was the logic. And the reason they said it's not science, the characteristics of science that creationism has to meet were, and he listed several of them, but one of the key ones was creationism has to make testable predictions. And... It's a complicated concept, but one that's easy to recognize intuitively. So I've got a water bottle here to drink from. If I pick it up, gravity predicts that when I release it, it'll fall to the earth. Right now, I still have my grip on it. So the the releasing it is still future. So my gravity is making a prediction that it'll fall. Of course, I release it, now it falls. That's, That's the defining characteristic of science. That's the gold standard. And the criticism of creationism has been, well, all you guys say, meaning young earthers like me, is all you say is God did it. So you, you can see how they, they find that to be anti-scientific. Well, what's mm-hmm. going to happen to this water bottle that I have gripped in my hand if I release it? Well, God's going to make it fall. How, how does that allow us to advance our knowledge about the world? Why does this person have cancer? God did it. I mean, they view that as anti-science and not helpful for the progress of knowledge in the world. So that's what I've had in mind when I wrote Replacing Darwin. We need to, creationists, if they want to be treated as scientific, if creationism wants a place at the scientific table, it has to make testable predictions. Predictions that future experiments could reveal to be true or false. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the, the bottom line in this book. That's why I call it replacing Darwin, not just rebutting Darwin, because my goal is not simply to say, here's why evolution is wrong. The argument from the evolutionary community for at least 40 years has been, you can poke all the holes in evolution that you want, until you give us something better, there's no point even having a discussion. So that's the yeah. main focus of the book. I deal with some of the anti-evolutionary arguments you've heard, and, and, but, but the, the real thrust of it is, let me give you a better, testable, predictive explanation. And so the arguments I give are, here's how I can predict mutation rates in genetics. Here's how I can uh, predict genetic function. And I, and I focus the book on genetics, not just because it's my field of expertise, but because that is the most important field of science on the question of the origin of species. If you want to know who we came from, who horses came from, who bacteria came from, or what they came from, that's a question of ancestry. And the only field of science that directly records it is the field of genetics, which makes it the most important field of science. 
And therefore, the testable predictions in that field of science are the most important predictions that exist. And that's fundamentally what I lay out in the book in every genetic compartment that we have access to. Yeah, I have definitely experienced that where people have said, yeah, you know, creation research stuff isn't really science. It's a a realm of apologetics where people use scientific information to, to make the Christian faith reasonable by means of arguments, but it's not doing science in that it's not creating hypotheses that can be falsified through experiment. And therefore, it isn't moving anything anywhere. And it seems like, especially when people have a progressive mindset, like things are supposed to progress and you have to like, that's what you have to do. That seems to be a realistic thing. And I've, I've asked Young Earth Gracious, like, you know, what about this predictive thing? Like, what, what would you predict? And I, I know some people in like retrospect have said, well, for, let me give you an example. Like when the human genome was mapped out, the expectation or the statement was that a, hu- a huge proportion of it was, quote, junk DNA. It didn't do anything. And that was the result of long-term evolution. It's just those parts weren't needed anymore. And w- as we went through the encode process, it was found that there's there were lots of things that this other DNA was doing. It just wasn't coding for proteins. And because that's all we were looking for, that's all we found. And so it turns out that almost all of DNA has some use, it seems like. And that's what you would predict if creatures were created rather than evolved. You would You would think they wouldn't have a lot of junk DNA as opposed to having a lot of it. But that seemed to come after the fact rather than come out before it. So like, so here's what I heard you say. Um, some of the things where you're offering predictive direction, one is um, prediction of mutation rates. Another is prediction of what anst- shared interest- ancestry would look like on a shorter timescale. What are some of the predictions that you make that the reader would find? Yes, and I, I, I'm grateful for that you brought up that point. I would call that the, uh, the after the fact explanation a retrodiction i think it was stephen jay gould or one of the other more famous evolutionists who i I learned that term from and that's that's an important distinction from what the real test of science is it's not after the fact rationalization it's stuff that is the future and and we take it for granted i mean the the laws of physics are the laws of physics because when you sit in the airplane seat and you're about to take off you're trusting that all the laws we've discovered are going to work and if they don't it's a life and death decision so yeah. There's there's really big implications of having that principle be accurate time and time again. So mm-hmm. the things that I try to predict in the book are are constrained by what have we already discovered and what's left to measure. Right. So if you think about the process by which genetic data are gathered, what tends to be gathered first is just the raw sequence from a diverse group, whether it be a bunch of different species in a family, whether it be every different major category of bird, whether it be different ethnicities within the human population, that's usually the first step. That's the data you have in hand because it's the easiest to get. What's much more expensive and labor intensive is getting the mutation rate for these various species or individuals within a, within a population because it's in a sense redundant data. So what is the mutation rate in people of German descent? Well, the first thing you're going to do is get a person of German descent and a person of African descent and a person of Chinese descent and all, all sorts of these, these sorts of things. And that, that happens initially. It takes a lot of money and time and effort to find a bunch of parent-offspring pairs where you get the DNA sequence of dad and the DNA sequence of son, DNA sequence of mom, DNA sequence of daughter. That's how you physically measure the mutation rate. That's a lot more money and DNA sequence, and so that tends to happen last. And so that's why I'm predicting mutation rates, because that's one of the last things we have to still measure. That's what's still future. It's one of the few unknowns that's out there. There's a whole lot of DNA sequence from all sorts of species and individuals. We haven't yet gotten to the place of measuring the mutation rates. Another thing that's also labor and and time-intensive is this idea of function. So what it, as, as you brought up the ENCODE project and junk DNA, a lot of that is retrodictive in the sense of it's after-the-fact mm-hmm. rationalization. What has yet to be done in the future is letter-by-letter, letter, or in, in terms of proteins and technical terms, amino acid by amino acid, there's, there's, there's more specific detailed levels of function that no one has yet elucidated because that's, again, time, money, labor-intensive of... Yeah. Letter by letter, let's, let's eliminate this letter and see what effect it has on function and test all the various ways it could be functional. That's just a huge amount of 
time and no one knows yet the answer. And so those are some of the specific predictions I put in the book. One right. of the most exciting predictions, though, that I've been able to follow up on since the book came out in 2017, several years ago, is something that makes sense if you think about it in the realm of human history. So if human DNA is only 6,000 years old, or if you go back to the bottleneck of the flood, for certain genetic compartments, only 4,500 years old, like the Y chromosome, the male inherited DNA, you can only go back to that point. Then you should see the stamp of human history all throughout our DNA. You should be able to read off the events we know from most of mainstream history in our DNA. For example, the Mongol invasions of Eastern Europe. You should see Mongol DNA, basically, or some sort of signature of Central Asian, East Asian DNA coming into the European population. You should be able to see the long isolation of, of, the, of the Chinese population. You should be able to see all these sorts of things. And, and one other aspect that's a little bit more technical, but is really, I'd say, the best smoking gun that I published after the book came out uh, about a year ago, end of 2019 and, and beginning of 2020, is looking at the history of human population growth. And, and the reason I'm, I'm using DNA for that is DNA is essentially a tool to understand a family tree. And a family tree inherently records information about population sizes. So this, gets, this wraps us back around to the question of Adam and Eve. If you can create a family tree, the number of branches on the tree tells you the population size at the local level and at the global level. So my family tree, me and my wife and four kids, four branches coming off from me and my, this couple, my, me, my, my wife and I. And that records the population size right now. It's sort of a kindergarten point, but a profound point. It's the population size in my immediate family. That principle applies around the globe. If you combine all the family trees from everyone, you can get a sense for the near 8 billion people. There's nearly 8 billion branches in the global family tree. DNA should reflect that. And we know that the, the history of population growth, which we can get from archaeology, historical records from the Roman Empire, the Chinese empires, and so forth, is a hockey stick shaped. It's gradual growth till about the 1400s, and then it shoots up. It's, it's multiplied about 20-fold since 1400. And we can see that now. That's, that's a testable prediction I put in replacing Darwin. So being able to work out those analyses was still feature at the time of that publication. I've been able to do those analyses, and I've published them, and that's, that's what we've seen. So that, that, to me, is science in action. And what was encouraging to me was uh, I have a pastor friend in Wisconsin, I think northern Wisconsin, and I don't know that he's necessarily a strong young earther or where he stands on the issue, but he got really excited when he saw, he said, oh, you're actually advancing science. You're making discoveries about the world. You're, 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 making, mm-hmm. you're finding new things about the pre-Columbian Americas mm-hmm. that you wouldn't be able to do without your young earth view. So for him, that was eye-opening of yeah. this is a new phase we're in. We're actually not just saying nah about evolution. It's we're now going beyond that. And again, that's why I call the book Replacing Darwin, because this is a new paradigm by which we can advance our basic knowledge about the world, even human history, and what happened before Europeans arrived on this continent. And that, to me, is a game changer. It has profound implications in the legal realm, because again, this is a standard that was laid down 40 years ago. It's the same standard that's repeated in evolutionary textbooks. I have them in my office. Students at Madison will encounter them and take a third-year biology class. Uh, Fatuma is one of the authors, and Kirkpatrick now. If you go to their, their creation evolution chapter, that's what they say is the problem with young earth creation. They don't make these testable predictions. That is now factually irrelevant. It's, it's inaccurate. It's, it's no longer a relevant argument because creationists are doing that, and they're seeing success. So, uh, to summarize this for listeners, so I th- that, that would argue would run something like this. We live in a world in which nobody is going to actually personally do any of this science. They're going to pay attention to someone and listen to someone from the scientific community to be listened to. You can't just know science stuff and talk about it. You have to do science and try to create predictions and new knowledge by trying to falsify those predictions. So it's important that creation scientists be scientists, not scientifically trained apologists. And, and you're saying, and we're doing that now. And that wasn't really true in the past. Yes. I would say, in the realm of biology, we're doing that now. We've seen that historically in the fields of geology. So the RATE project was a, a major effort in the, I think, the early 2000s. That was largely a geology project. There's been other predictions made in the field of astronomy by, by Russ Humphreys and others. So okay. I would say historically, I'm 
extending that precedence now into the field of biology. I'm personally more excited about this just because it's my field. Right. And it's just stuff right. I, I never th- dreamed I'd be discovering or looking into. And so right. to follow uh, the data I mean, to this point is, is pretty wild for me. I mean, I partly assume as a scientist too, like you like the apologetics and the theology is important and you like talking about it, but like you also like doing science and like trying to find out stuff and this, that it's kind of fun. Exactly. It's to me, it's, it's a mystery novel. I always liked the whodunits and this is a, this is a crazy whodunit. How did it come about? And it uncovers things. I mean, you can't predict the ending because you don't know what, what the answer is. And so to, to follow the trail is a, is a, well, it's a glorious roller coaster ride if you actually do reach resolution. It's very depressing yeah. until you reach that resolution, but that's part of the process of science. Yes. Now, you would also agree, I think, that just as in order to be scientific in that sense, creation, young earth creationists need to do science, you'd also say that secular people and anti Christian folks actually do evolutionary apologetics, and kids learn that like in school. And so having a doing apologetics isn't wrong. Like poking holes in evolution isn't inherently bad because there's a lot of people that teach evolution that aren't doing predictive science through evolution. They're just teaching it as a paradigm of thought. And so therefore anti-evolutionary apologetics is still a reasonable action. It's just not what's going to allow young earth creationism to be scientifically triumphant. Yes. I would say if you look at the process of science, you could call anti-evolutionary apologetics as step one of the scientific process. That was one of the lessons I learned the hard way, not in the field of creation evolution, but in the field of cancer research and stem cell research. The first step in advancing a novel hypothesis, or if you, here's what we had to get, get tested on basically in graduate school. The, the key to getting a successful grant application, to get, getting funding, to, to propose, here's what we need to do to get people to agree with you, first have to find out the shortcomings of our current knowledge. You have to say, here's an unanswered question. And oftentimes, the biggest scientific discoveries come from questioning things everyone takes for granted. Right. But we all know this is to be true. Well, how do we know it's true? Oh, no one has actually established that. Oh, it's full of mm-hmm. holes. Oh, this is the experiment we need to do, and lo and behold, this is what we discovered. You can look at the history of science, and that's often how major discoveries mm-hmm. are made. So, or to put it in personal terms, I wouldn't be here today were it not for the work decades prior and previous generation of saying, here's the shortcomings of evolution. That's the first thing you have to identify. And that's part of what I do in my book. And I say, here's here's why the current major arguments for evolution fall short. In in many cases, I say it's because there's another idea that explains them equally well. So in a sense, it's a tie and you can't call it evidence for evolution. But that's, that's the key first step in saying, and here's why we should go pursuing this direction, especially if you're applying for grant money, which is, yeah. that's, that, you know, get money or you die in science. So that's, okay, so I, that's, I that's think, an essential component. I think one of the things we want to accomplish in this podcast, and, and so I think we've established the like looking forward, making predictions, that that's important, and that young earth creationists are doing that now. I think part of this is, I think people are going to be looking for a little bit of red meat, or just relative to like, okay, what are some of the like current good evolution isn't a good paradigm arguments like where like you you talk in the book about deductive versus inductive reasoning that you know deduction is like you have premises your conclusions fall from the premises and you're sure science doesn't work that way science is inductive you have a reality then you try to explain it through hypotheses testing falsification verification right and so you're like what what we do with science is we have to like try to figure out what the possible possibilities are and then we try to figure out which ones are correct and what you're what you say in the book is a lot of people now in science aren't considering possibilities that young earth creationism would predict. If you add that in as a possibility and you look at the evolutionary predictive possibility and the young earth creationist predictive possibility, it's either a tie, like the data doesn't really tell you one way or another, or there are some that seem to favor a young earth creationist paradigm or explanation rather than a long-term evolutionary one. Can you take us through a few of those? Like people who've grown up and they've just were like smart people are evolutionists. Christians just need to get on board. They've never heard, creationist arguments or they think that they're they only come out of rural tennessee or something like what are some like what are some red give us some red meat nathan nathaniel yeah let's tick off some of darwin's major arguments real fast and how i'd answer them because these are basically the same arguments repeated in evolutionary textbooks today just with newer data so one of Mm -hmm. darwin's arguments was that animals have migrated to their current locations because the view in 
apparently the late 1800s was no god created every species in its current location and they haven't changed ever since so part of his argument was to say no he, he compared breeds and species and said no there's there's evidence that uh there is some common ancestry beyond the level of species and it looks like they've migrated so he shot down two of the major points he he did the process of science here's a here's a competing idea here's how you would falsify it here's data that mm-hmm. falsify it disprove it and so therefore this is what's left standing evolution and the way i would answer that is well that was the old i would say unbiblical view of creation science because one of the fundamental components of a young earth reading of genesis is a global flood so of course animals have migrated to the current locations they start restarted after creation in the middle east and had to migrate to their locations today so mm-hmm. there's an evidence that both sides say well of course they migrate in terms of common ancestry a big difference between now and 1859 in the in the creationist camp the young earth creationist camp would be no the bible says god creates things according to their kind unfortunately some english translations do use the term species but that's mm-hmm. really a, a recently defined term the way we use it today you look at the criteria for bringing animals on board the ark two of every kind land dependent kinds male and female the implication that the larger meta narrative there is we're going to restart in a sense we're going to we're going to restart genesis 1 but in a cursed world you're going to take two of every kind and they're going to have to go be fruitful and multiply in genesis 9 some of the commands given are similar to genesis 1 and so you need to be able to reproduce that's why you have male and female and that leads us then to a criteria by which we can identify membership in a kind and that's breeding and to make a long story short roughly the level not of species not of one taxonomic level higher genus but family that seems to be a good rough first approximation of what a kind is so cats large and small lions tigers ocelots snow leopards house cats all belong to the same family even though they're separate mm-hmm. species there's reproductive compatibility among many of them that's just one example horses donkeys zebras all part of the same family even though they're separate species on and on it goes modern young earth creationists say yes there is common ancestry within a family there are new species that have formed so, so many of darwin's arguments arguing for common ancestry within a family creationists say yes of course mm-hmm. where darwin then of course extended it and he wasn't just arguing for common ancestry within a family he was saying universal right. common ancestry every species alive right. on this planet goes back to one or a few common ancestors right Some so of those if you have continuity back to family why wouldn't you go continuity all the way back to kingdom and so he just kept yes. moving and, and you're like well maybe maybe you can't maybe you can't do that right but you argue in your book i think something that is also has some new information which is i think in darwin's time the idea of speciation they didn't really know how fast that could work exactly how it worked i think in your book what you argue is there's tons of dna information that we don't even know what it does and some of that information may very well be environmentally specific in what it brings out in things as they develop and so speciation may be able to happen a lot faster than we would have otherwise thought so that you can get a house cat and an ocelot and a lion relative to environments through fewer genealogical generations than older views of evolution would have predicted is that correct yeah and and part of the reason i land there is given the shortcomings i would say of of other evolutionary arguments so young earth creationists have as part of their scientific task distinguishing between evidence of design and evidence of common ancestry it's 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 a question evolutionists don't have to wrestle with because they just say everything is ancestry common ancestry yeah and some of their arguments for saying universal common ancestry include things like homology homo the same study of sameness biological similarity well humans design things that have similarity that's you, you can't say that's ancestry versus design they say that the way we can classify light, life, nested hierarchy, or groups within groups. Well, you can classify things humans have designed groups within groups. Part of what I discuss in the book is here's the common evidences for universal common ancestry, but they're equally explicable by design. So you, you can't use that. What, what that narrows the question then to is how do you explain specifically, you know, what, what's left then? The number of DNA differences and the function of those DNA differences. That's really where the argument is at by process of elimination. All these other arguments are no longer relevant because each side explains it equally well. And that's where really the red meat is then. So I, I go through, here's already established evidence for lots of function, like ENCODE, that's consistent. It's such a trajectory. That's what I put in the book. It's a trajectory of increasing evidence for function at the DNA level. Evolutionists explicitly say the opposite. 
So there's something where we can do a head-to-head comparison where we actually predict different things instead of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I show the evidence, again, that you referred to in code, uh, also evidence from other species, increasing evidence for function that's consistent with creation, but I also then take it a step further and say, here's what I specifically, mathematically predict will happen in the future. And then I challenge my evolutionary colleagues to meet that same standard. Because really, if, if they've been insisting on that for decades, they should be able to do the same thing. Put precise mathematical equations in print that tell me what future experiments should reveal. So that's, that's part of the red meat is I have yet to see that from my evolutionary colleagues. Another thing I've yet to see is specific testable predictions, again, on the mutation rates. We already have, as a step one, the DNA diversity among species, within species, among humans around the globe, will now predict the rate at which it changes. And it gets a little complicated there because we have different types of DNA in our cells, as do other species. Most of our DNA, 99% of our DNA, comes from both parents. That puts a big crimp on our ability to go back in the past because I'm 50% of each of my parents. My children are 25% of their grandparents. And that, that exponential decay, dividing by half every generation makes it difficult to use that DNA compartment, 99% of our DNA, as a tool to interrogate the past. And so what, again, by process of elimination, that makes the DNA inherited from a single parent all the more important. And so the, the, the DNA inherited from mom would be the mitochondrial DNA. It's a very small fraction of our DNA, not that popular. And of course, from dad is the Y chromosome. And there we have, and, and what makes this also so interesting is creation and evolution both agree that in the beginning, there were no differences, let's say within a family, if you're talking animals or between Adam and Eve, there was only one Y chromosome, Adam's Y chromosome. So all the differences we see today are the result of mutations. And what I've shown then, and and to me is the red meat, both in mitochondrial DNA and in the Y chromosome, if you look at the established data that's been published by the evolutionary community, it fits a recent origin. There are DNA clocks that measure time since the beginning. And both the maternal and the paternal lineages give the same answer within the last 6,000 years or 4,500 years if it's the Y chromosome. The debate, of course, over Adam and Eve tends to be in the, in the DNA that we get from both parents. A, a, a short answer to that debate is evolutionists, even theistic evolutionists, professing Christians who hold evolution, assume that all of our DNA differences must be the result of mutation mistakes over time. And if you run your equations with that assumption, yes, you have to come from a population, not a pair. The difference, of course, this alternative hypothesis that, frankly, no one on the other side seems to consider, because I've witnessed this firsthand, is the possibility that God created Adam and Eve with differences. Not necessarily that Eve somehow looked fundamentally different from Adam, but Adam within his DNA, he had two copies of DNA, he had to, because we know that if you have only one copy, that's genetically lethal. Sadly, it's part of our world. But uh, Adam would have had differences within his DNA, would have had diversity within himself. And if you start with that assumption, you can easily explain that 99% of our DNA within 6,000 years, and you get it back to two people. So that's, that's really where the debate is in that realm, and I discuss that in the book as well. If Adam and Eve had no genetic differences within their selves, Essentially, by definition, what they would be doing when they reproduced was a form of cloning. And that's, that's kind of weird to me. So the yeah, only way we'd to only avoid, have like one race and yeah, yeah. The only way to avoid the possibility of Adam and Eve being fruitful and multiplying by cloning is by equipping them with DNA diversity from the start. So that, that is satisfying to me theologically and scientifically, it makes sense of the data that we see. Yeah, and I, the the benefit of that is that now it's not a post hoc argument. If you're saying that a reasonable designer would need to do that to accomplish his ready stated goals, to say that oh you're just assuming diversity of the original pair so that you can make the data work is is not necessary, right? You can say no based on our own assumptions by what it says that God wants to create a table of nations and He wants healthy offspring and He doesn't want them to to um, reproduce versus via cloning and so on. As a designer, as the engineer, he must have created Adam and Eve with that, much less there had to be diversity for just him to be a healthy human being. Therefore, it's not a post hoc argument for me to say, well, the only way I can make this data work is to assume a certain level of diversity in the first parents. Exactly. And I would also say what would remove it from the realm of post hoc is to to keep beating this drum, because I think it's so important, is it makes testable predictions. 
So I was resistant to this idea actually initially when I was when I was working on this. I started off working on mitochondrial DNA and these sorts of things and saw success, and so I wanted to apply the same thinking to the the DNA, the ninety nine percent of the DNA that we inherit from both parents. I thought maybe we have a clock here, and I I, I also found the idea of creating Adam and Eve with diversity seemed a little. Uh, that, that's just too easy. That's it, it, not a fair argument. You, you should pursue this as far as you go. And it, I, I changed my thinking partly because I was able to see this does make testable predictions for the future. It's not just a God did it so we can get around this problem concept. And it makes testable predictions that are different predictions than a evolutionary person would make, right? So you're, it's not just that it makes predictions. It actually makes differential pr- predictions. So if your predictions come true, it favors young earth creationism as an inductive explanation as opposed to an evolutionary explanation. Is that, is that right? Exactly. And one of the key differences is in this arena of function. And I, and I want to clarify something that I don't think I clarified earlier. One of the main criticisms of the ENCODE project was that it was simply biochemistry and it could be spurious. And, and I will grant the evolutionists that argument i agree with them it was not a fully rigorous investigation what you need to, to be fully rigorous is to genetically knock out letter by letter each of our each of the letters in our dna sequence and say okay what happens obviously which is have, incredibly tedious and expensive right and ethically encumbered and that we don't <laughs> want to use humans as guinea pigs and say would you, would you volunteer and raise your hand if you want to be manipulated genetically so, okay. in a sense, we're kind of stuck with the biochemistry, and so I tried to phrase it very carefully in the book, saying there's a trajectory. You know, this is consistent with what, what creationists expect, and here's specific predictions for the future on function. And evolutionists, actually, in this case, have made these predictions, put them in print, and, and one of the arguments they've made against the ENCODE project is this can't be true because evolution predicts the obvious. Well, that's very helpful because then you have in print, here's what evolutionists expect and so if it turns out different we should be able to make an argument for or against evolution in light of that prediction and there's an irony here that i didn't mention earlier given that difference to me it's ironic that it would be the young earth creationists who are accurately predicting mutation rates even though this is to be the engine of evolution Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you like this episode, rate us, review us on your favorite podcast platform, and also share this episode with a friend. That is the best way that we have to reach new listeners. If you have an idea for a question that you want us to answer on the podcast or just a general podcast topic, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org and we'll do our best to fit it in. Also, if you'd like to find more episodes of the podcast, you can do so by going to highpointchurch.org slash podcast, or else we're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, other apps like that. So until next time, thanks for joining us for this episode of Engage and Equip.